To begin this sermon, I'd like to ask a few questions for our consideration. First question being this. Is the world really broken? As we have been claiming throughout this sermon series that it is. Which is to say, is there a way that things ought to be? And this is not it. Or is this just the way that things are? Regrettable perhaps, but not in any way fallen or out of alignment with a larger purpose. And then second, this question. Is there really such a thing as sin? That is to say, is there really something at work in the world that is not only counter to, but that is also in a very real way parasitic on the good that ought to be? Or is sin simply a name we assign to things that we just happen to dislike? And then, finally, this question. If indeed there is such a thing as sin in the world, then what is to be done about it? Does sin just get to go on like this forever? as a never-ending blight on all that is right and just and proper in this world? Or does the mere existence of sin demand some sort of judgment and final reckoning against it? Yes, all of these questions, as we round out this sermon series on the Minor Prophets, and as we turn our attention to the events surrounding Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, yes, all of these questions are questions that must be asked. And fortunately for us, the Old Testament prophet Malachi had some answers. Prophesying around the year 450 BCE, some three generations removed from the Babylonian exile, yes, the prophet Malachi indeed had some answers to these questions. For you see, by Malachi's time, some 400 years after the vision of a peaceable kingdom had first been cast by prophets such as Isaiah and Amos. Now, all these years later, by Malachi's time, still that vision and still that peaceable kingdom had not come to pass. Still, corruption was rampant and injustice pervasive. Still, faithlessness and immorality persisted among the people. Still, things in the world were as broken as ever they had been before. But Malachi, seeing all of this with clear and sober eyes, Malachi knew all these years later that things could not go on like this forever. For something Malachi knew was indeed broken and thus, that something Malachi knew, therefore, had to be ultimately put right. 
And so then knowing this, believing this deep down at his core, Malachi then lifted his voice as a prophet. And channeling the word of God, he prophesied saying, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way. And indeed he is coming, but who can endure that day? For he is like a refining fire. I am sending my messenger to prepare the way, he said. But who can endure that day? Which leads us to Matthew chapter 21, to that day when Jesus comes riding into the capital city to cries of Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he was, many that day believed. The promised messenger. The long-awaited Messiah. The conqueror who would forewarn his people and then issue judgment against all forms of sin and evil and injustice. Yes, here he finally was, many that day believed. And thus, with palm fronds in hand, they waited with bated breath, whispering to one another and wondering to themselves, what will his judgment look like? There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which Aslan, the mighty lion, having rescued the traitorous young Edmund from the dark spell of the white witch, then begins the process of restoring Edmund to wholeness and righteousness and integrity and altness. But importantly, this process of refinery begins not through violence or intimidation, but rather through the immediate power of Aslan's presence, which is to say it is not a stern lecture that initiates Edmund's process of redemption that day, nor is it a physical threat that sets Edmund along the path to restoration. Instead, it is Edmund's immediate recognition as he stands face to face with the great lion of how deeply wrong he, Edmund, has been, of how deeply wrong he, Edmund, is. It is Edmund's immediate recognition standing there in the presence of the one who designed all Narnian things of the vast chasm that separates his, Edmund's, own waywardness from the way that things ought to be. In this scene, Edmund simply knows for the very first time in his life who he really is at his core. And again, because of whose presence he is in, he knows this immediately and he knows it without question or without any objection. For the very first time in his life, Edmund cannot evade or hide from or lie, not to anyone, not even to himself. For there he is, for the very first time in his own naked shame, and there he is faced with a choice, with an 
ultimate choice, with the ultimate choice. Seeing with crystal clarity how things should be. And seeing with crystal clarity how far out of alignment he is with that way. Here, Edmund is challenged either to repent of his wrongdoing and to commit himself to trying to help put things back to rights in the world or else to turn away from what he has seen and double down on the destruction of his own humanity and of the larger divine design. I love this scene, but reading it always makes me shudder. And I say that because I believe that Malachi was right, which is to say, I believe that there is a way that things are supposed to be. And because I believe that there is such a thing as sin, and because I believe that I and you and all of us are complicit in that sin daily, and because I believe that judgment is indeed coming and absolutely must come on such sin. And so, yes, I rejoice and I shudder in reading this passage because in reading it, I know that what Edmund experienced that day as he stood before Aslan is that which soon enough awaits us all. For all of us, if we haven't already, we'll one day have our eyes open to just how broken this world really is and to just how complicit we ourselves are in its brokenness. And thus one day we too, if we haven't already, will have to decide whether this epiphany will begin the process of repentance and refinery for us or whether this epiphany will be the moment when we truly turn our backs on the one who spoke the world into being and who calls us even yet to be partners in bringing about its repair. I mean, let us think about this carefully. We can't really believe that folks like us who hold a relatively good deal of power and privilege can go on like this forever, right? While the vast majority of the world's population subsidizes our comfort through their own discomfort and hardship. And we can't really believe that folks like us can continue to ravage creation and strip it of all its resources and then hoard the vast majority of its bounty principally for ourselves, right? And we can't really believe that we can continue as human beings to harbor feelings of enmity or hostility or prejudice toward other image-bearing human beings, turning a blind eye to the many written and unwritten laws and social codes that exclude and marginalize and oppress and suppress while these written and unwritten laws continue to elevate and empower and protect others much like ourselves. We can't really believe that things can go on like this forever right? And we can't really believe that we can sit idly by forever 
While a perverse and immoral culture continues to objectify and deface our shared humanity, exploiting our brothers and particularly our sisters in all manner of lewd and immoral and dehumanizing ways, we can't really believe that we can just sit idly by on such barbarities forever. Right? And then leaving off with such large-scale collective examples, of which these I've just cited barely even scratched the surface. Yes, leaving off with such large-scale collective examples and instead focusing on the personal and the isolated, what about, say, all of those little lies that we tell? What about all of the small acts of betrayal? What about the large ones? What about all of the, dis the dishonored commitments? What about all of the angry and violent outbursts? What about all of these sinful, shameful things and so many others like them besides, things that we commit either intentionally or unintentionally daily. What about all of these? Yes, we are all guilty, dear family. We are all, in a far deeper fashion than we likely even recognize, we are all complicit in the brokenness of things. We are all Edmonds. And therefore, as it did for Edmund, so too. Judgment on such brokenness is indeed coming on us, for it has to. Justice demands it. Righteousness demands it. Altness demands it. Which is why Malachi, facing this reality head on, asks, who can endure such a thing? And that leads us back to today, to Palm Sunday. As we once again focus on the hopes and the expectations that that crowd had that day as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. What will it look like, they wondered, when this Messiah on whom we've been waiting finally renders his judgment? But then, of course, Jesus goes quietly and without resistance to a Roman cross. Whereupon he promptly dies. Having issued, it would seem, no judgment whatsoever. And so, what a crock, they then all thought. What a fraud. Here was no messenger. Here was no Messiah, here was no refiner, for here was no judgment, and here therefore was no setting right of anything whatsoever. What a crock, they thought. But oh, dear family, how wrong those crowds that day were. How little they yet understood that deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis would put it. 
How little they yet understood the very essence of divine judgment. For you see, sin was indeed judged on that day. All sin, once and for all. For all sin, having been absorbed that day on the cross by Jesus. Having been taken that day into Jesus' very person. All sin was exposed that day for the grave horror that it is, for the blight that it is on how things are supposed to be on this earth, with Jesus' resurrection from the dead serving as confirmation of that final verdict. And significantly, like Edmund with Aslan, no words or physical demonstrations were necessary that day in rendering that final verdict. Because when suddenly seen clearly, that is to say, when the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth are seen for what they really are, then the naked power of the truth immediately, as with Edmund that day before Aslan, begins to convict one of how unrighteous he or she is over against the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Surely this man is the Son of God, cried the Roman centurion, beholding this very thing. And then with this realization, with this epiphany upon us, like a laser upon our soul, we can either submit ourselves to a process of refinery, partnering with God to become more and more who we ought to be, and partnering with God to bring this world into ever greater alignment with its original design, or we can turn our backs on this invitation doubling down on our self-destruction and on our debased complicity in the brokenness of things. Down the first path, dear family, is greater love and joy and peace and patience and all the fruits of the Spirit. Down the other path is ever-increasing anger and fear and bitterness and hollowness and emptiness and shallowness and self-absorption. Down the first path is a process that leads onward toward the kingdom of God. And down the other path is a process that leads ultimately to misery and selfishness and alienation. For Malachi was right. Judgment is indeed coming. Always it is coming. And moreover, Malachi was right about this. That judgment works like refinery. In fact, the only question Malachi left unanswered, because it is a question that each of us must answer for ourselves, is this. What in us is being refined? Our better angels or our baser instincts? Yes, what in us is being refined? And in what direction is that refinery taking us? So all of this to say, 
Thanks be to God for prophets like Malachi and for prophets like all of these whom we've considered in this sermon series who cast a vision for us of what a restored world and of what a restored humanity could and should and will look like. And thanks be to God for sending a messenger out ahead of us to show us the way. For there is a way that things are supposed to be. And because sin is a blight on that way. And because sin cannot then be permitted to persist forever. And because things will therefore ultimately be set right. As the Apostle Paul says, on this hope hangs all the law and the prophets. And so then, Hosanna, we together cry. As we bring this sermon series to a close, and together we therefore proclaim on this Palm Sunday, blessed is the one who came, and blessed is the one who comes still in the name of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now I'll now be down front to receive.